Chapter 17, Vietnam, The Advisory Years to 1965 by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Hampton. Chapter 17, Objectives Confirmed, Methods Expanded. Four days after taking office, President Johnson reaffirmed past American objectives in Vietnam. The United States was to help the Republic win the war against the externally directed and sustained communist conspiracy, assist the government in developing public support, and keep U.S. military and economic aid at the same level. This is a Vietnamese war, the president said, and the country and the war must, in the end, be run solely by the Vietnamese. He reiterated the October 1963 pledge to withdraw some Americans from the country. Yet at the same time, he instructed the State Department to prepare a white paper documenting Hanoi's control of the Viet Cong and its supply of them through Laos. He further solicited JCS plans for stepped-up clandestine warfare on North Vietnam and for cross-border incursions into Laos to check infiltration. Informing General Taylor on December 2, 1963, that Vietnam was the most critical military area for the United States, President Johnson asked the chairman to have the Joint Chiefs assign the best available officers to Harkins, blue-ribbon men at every level. He also sent Secretary McNamara to visit Vietnam again. During December 19 and 20 in Vietnam, the Defense Secretary found General Min's government fragile and indecisive and drifting. Unless current trends were reversed in the next two or three months, they would lead to neutralization at best, and more likely to a communist-controlled state. The dilemma for American policymakers was that pouring in personnel and other resources to prosecute the war would hinder rather than help the Vietnamese stand on their own feet. Unable to resolve the basic problem, the Secretary listened to sync pack plans for covert operations against North Vietnam. Vietnamese troops were to carry out a wide range of sabotage and psychological operations to pressure the insurgents with minimum risk. As for extensive forays envisioned along the Laotian border, McNamara doubted if they would be politically acceptable or militarily effective, but he approved having U-2 high-altitude photo planes in Vietnam to obtain better information on enemy infiltration routes. At McNamara's suggestion, the president on December 31 assured men of lasting American support. He gave final approval to clandestine actions against North Vietnam and to the U-2 flights. The movement of Strategic Air Command's U-2s to Binh Hoa proceeded so swiftly that PACAF first knew of it when the planes entered the traffic pattern at Hickam. The high-level photography later revealed extensive logistics network in North Vietnam and Laos supply routes capable of infiltrating large numbers of trucks, men, and material into South Vietnam. General Harkins felt hopeful that the Viet Cong attacks had peaked immediately after the coup. His optimism was short-lived. Government ground actions that had decreased after Diem's downfall sprang back to between 500 and 600 a day by November 20, but they were blunted by mismanagement and defeat. A new commander spurred the Lopardic 7th Division south of Saigon, but he was relieved before the month was up. Neither of two battalions conducting clearing operations in Long An province knew that the other was there, and they fired on each other. 
The clash killed two men and wounded 20, exerting a demoralizing effect on both units. Before dawn on November 24th, the aggressive 21st Division fell victim to a carefully planned and executed ambush in Anjouin province. After the Viet Cong struck the Chao Lao outpost and a strategic hamlet near the tip of the Khao Mao Peninsula, the division hurried four heliliths of troops into two landing zones, with tactical aircraft flying pre-strike, escort, and air cover. Enemy fire downed an H-21 and damaged 10 H-21s and UH-1s. While the ground troops took cover, USAF and Vietnamese A-1Hs, B-26s, and T-28s made repeated attacks in which valor at times outweighed discretion. C-47s and C-123s paradropped a battalion to pinch off the foe's withdrawal route. The guerrillas escaped because the C-123s put most of the troops on the far side of the Kai Nuuk River. Three bodies were discovered, and there were signs that at least 150 insurgents had been carried away in sampans. Brigadier General Robert H. York, USA, who saw the entire operation, commended the fine work of tactical air. The operation was nevertheless costly to the air crews, most damage coming from 50 caliber fire. Aircraft losses included an H-21, a B-26 shot down with loss of the crew, and the crash landing after battle damages of two Vietnamese A-1Hs and one T-28. Ground fire hit 25 planes. The helicopter force had consisted of 12 H-21s and 13 UH-1s. Its support came from four T-28s for pre-strike missions, two B-26s for escort, and three B-26s, eight A-1Hs, and 12 T-28s for cover. It was the largest one-day close air support operation to date. In an otherwise cheerless month, Captain Richard W. Von Haik, Air Liaison Officer, engineered one small air victory against the guerrillas along the Dong Nai River. The Viet Cong habitually fired at aircraft, but slipped through a sweep of the area by a government battalion. On December 8, Von Haik persuaded the province chief to join him on an L-19 flight over that ground. Since the battalion had just finished its sweep, the chief felt sure he was wasting time. To his great surprise, he saw more than 50 people as the L-19 drew brisk fire. Von Haik drafted an airstrike plan and on the 9th and 12th dropped leaflets to warn that persons working with the Viet Cong were in danger. Because the area was bordered by strategic hamlets, the hamlet chiefs blocked egress from dawn to noon on December 14. On that morning, Von Haik and a Vietnamese observer flew into the area, discreetly trailed by three T-28s and two B-26s. When the L-19 was fired upon, the observer marked the target and the strike plane swept in. 23 enemy were killed and others wounded. This modest victory showed that armed reconnaissance could succeed in Vietnam. Twice in December, guerrillas in Zone D ambushed little convoys lacking air escort. The Viet Cong waylaid one in Bien Long province on the 23rd, resulting in 14 men killed, 7 wounded, and 5 missing. Vietnamese and U.S. Air Force planes flew 73 helicopter escort sorties in November, and 83 in December, a decrease from earlier in the year. In part, the decline mirrored the slowing of Vietnamese ground operations. It also stemmed from the growing practice of letting U.S. Army helicopter gunships take the place of strike aircraft, this despite MACV directives requiring the use of Vietnamese aircraft 
before bringing in American planes. In three Corps, the 5th Division's penchant for helicopter gunships contributed to a major defeat on the afternoon of December 31. A Ranger battalion ran into about two battalions of Viet Cong 10 miles west of Ben Kai and 8 miles southeast of Dao Fieng. The outnumbered Rangers formed a defensive perimeter and fought bravely, but they needed help. The 5th Division had several battalions at Ben Kat and Dong Tieng close enough to the scene of action and sufficiently strong to smash the insurgents. An L-19 forward air controller and at least two A-1Hs were constantly on station over the encircled rangers. Besides the 12 100-pound bombs and 800 rounds of 20-millimeter ammunition carried by each A-1H, more strike aircraft were available at Bin Ha and Tan San Nuit. Captain Ken C. Spears, Jr., air liaison officer, time and again asked that the A-1Hs be allowed to strike what were clearly enemy positions. But his calls fell on deaf ears. The orbiting relays of A-1Hs returned to Bin Ha without firing a shot. The sole airstrikes came from three flights of armed UH-1s and failed to uproot the guerrillas. Rescue battalions arrived at noon on January 1, 1964, long after the rangers had scattered. Ranger losses totaled six killed, 12 wounded, and 31 missing. An engagement that might have been a victory ended in another disheartening defeat. Colonel Harvey E. Henderson, acting 2nd Air Division commander, considered the failure to capitalize on strike aircraft firepower to border on being criminal. Ambassador Lodge cabled the same conclusion to Washington, citing Vietnamese failures to take advantage of superiority of firepower, which can be obtained by rapid reaction to VC troop concentrations. Admiral Felt bluntly told General Harkins that A-1H firepower was quite superior to that of the UH-1. It appears to me, Felt said, that our education program on the use of air power is unsatisfactory. The Vietnamese A-1H and T-28 squadrons boosted their strike sorties in November and December 1963. Still, they could not compensate for the fewer serviceable USAF B-26s and T-28s that were further diminished by battle damage. Moreover, the work of the Vietnamese forward air controllers left a lot to be desired. On December 6, for example, an L-19 and two T-28s responded to a request for an immediate airstrike on a Viet Cong battalion. When just 10 minutes from the target, the controller pleaded the need to refuel his half-full tanks. He and the fighter planes touched down at Tay Ninh Airport, lunched during the refueling, and went on their way. By then, the enemy battalion had vanished. Assessments of the political and military conditions in Vietnam at the close of 1963 were decidedly pessimistic. Severing relations with South Vietnam and the United States, Cambodia sought closer relations with China. Although communist support of the Viet Cong stealing into the Delta through Cambodia had already proved very worrisome, prospects swiftly worsened. The general situation in Vietnam had also eroded since the assassination of Diem and would continue to be bad in 1964. During January-May 1964, Hanoi sent an estimated 4,700 troops into South Vietnam. Formerly, most of the infiltrators were ethnic Southerners. Now there were growing numbers of native Northerners, many of them drafted into the North Vietnamese Army. The Viet Cong had earlier relied on French and American weapons, chiefly from stockpiles captured before 1954 in Indochina and Korea. Currently, most of the weapons were Chinese, brought by land and sea from North Vietnam. 
On January 22, 1964, the Joint Chiefs of Staff responded to President Johnson's November 1963 request by presenting a 10-point program of bolder actions to arrest SVN's military political decline. This proposed a virtual takeover of the war from the Saigon government by overt and covert bombing of North Vietnam, large-scale commando raids, mining the sea approaches, ground operations into Laos, and extended reconnaissance over both Laos and Cambodia. The plan also called for committing more U.S. forces to support combat in Vietnam and against North Vietnam. At Da Nang, where he commanded the I Corps, 37-year-old Major General Nguyen Kang kept close watch on the new government. He believed that some members of General Min's 12-man executive committee were plotting to arrest Min and other officers, including him, and declare for Vietnamese neutralism. After notifying General Harkins of his intentions, Kang flew to Saigon and on January 30 headed a coalition of younger generals who managed a relatively bloodless coup. He told Harkins the next day that the coup was pro-American, pro-Western, and anti-neutralist. The new government would step up the war at once. Harkins termed Kang the strongest military character in the country, even though he lacked political appeal and complete control over the armed forces. Ambassador Lodge thought the United States was beginning to make real progress with the Min government, but Kang's one-man rule might be more effective. President Johnson then sent Kang a personal note of support. A few days later, JCS Chairman Taylor readied a plan to revitalize the counterinsurgency. The key points embraced improved intelligence, a stabilized Kang government through reforms of land tenure, liquidation of land debts and other measures, the prospect of no more coups, a quickened campaign tempo, bolder actions against North Vietnam, maybe by Vietnamese bombing, and U.S. warnings to Hanoi to stop its aid to the Viet Cong. The CIA warned that the government and armed forces of South Vietnam must show definite improvement. If not, there was an even chance at best that Kang's administration would not survive during the following few months. The new government could not immediately turn the tide. About 12 miles south of Tay Ninh City lay the village of Ben Cao, a cluster of six strategic hamlets housing some 6,000 people. Before dawn on February 6, nearly 1,000 guerrillas drove the Vietnamese militia out of Bien Cao. While waiting for the government forces to appear, the Viet Cong forced the villagers to dig firing positions and shelters. Although USAF officers thought that precise air attacks would dislodge the insurgents with least danger to civilians, the three corps commander authorized firing into the village by artillery, strike aircraft, and helicopter gunships. Pairs of A-1Hs, B-26s, and T-28s struck as directed by Vietnamese forward air controllers. The insurgents fled after dark, leaving 11 of their dead behind. Civilian casualties numbered 46 killed, 60 wounded, and 670 burned in varying degrees. The bombardment demolished 670 houses and damaged 200 others, depriving 2,000 people of shelter. Though American relief supplies soon came, the survivors were more grateful to the enemy who made them dig for cover. Vietnamese officers said there would be no complaint about the civilian casualties. Yet the USAF counterinsurgency expert, Major General Edward G. Lansdale, pointed out that the government forces had violated a cardinal rule by not protecting people under Viet Cong attack. Cambodia posed a prickly problem to the Kang regime. 
Prince Sihanouk charged on February 11th that two Vietnamese aircraft had attacked a Cambodian village and killed five people. He held the United States partly to blame because it had overarmed Vietnam and torpedoed plans for an international conference to establish Cambodia's neutrality. Later border incidents impelled Sihanouk to accept arms from China and the Soviet Union. During Vietnamese border actions on March 19, Cambodian T-28 shot down a USAF-01. The American pilot, Captain Yui Thorsten Scoble, and the Vietnamese observer were killed. In the interim, intelligence estimates in Washington highlighted Hanoi's intent to expand support for the Viet Cong. South Vietnam's situation was seen as extremely serious. On February 20, President Johnson ordered Secretary McNamara to have the Joint Chiefs study the question of how to decrease Hanoi's activities. McNamara sent the President's directive to JCS Chairman Taylor on the 21st, adding that among alternatives being considered was a carefully planned program designed to exert increasing military pressures on North Vietnam. Johnson said publicly on February 21 that those directing and supplying the Viet Cong were playing a deeply dangerous game. He also formed the Vietnam Coordinating Committee to run the Washington side of the war. The chairman was Mr. William H. Sullivan, a Foreign Service officer and the United Nations advisor to the State Department's Bureau of Far Eastern Affairs. Members represented the Department of Defense, the Agency for International Development, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the White House. The president told Sullivan to find a way to speed operations against North Vietnam and to examine how to make Hanoi desist from its hostile actions. As the war seemed about to enter a new phase, there was talk in Washington, Hawaii, and Saigon of voluntary repatriation of U.S. dependents from Vietnam. But the hope of keeping Khan in power led to the decision not to move dependents out of the country. General Kang on February 22 published the national pacification plan that MACV had desired since Diem's overthrow. The concept called for local spreading oil stain or oil spot operations. These were military clear and hold actions starting in safe areas and rolling back the Viet Cong. Within pacified regions, a new life development program would enhance the civilian standard of living. These pacification measures were to be completed in one and two corps by January 1, 1965, and in three and four corps a year later. Corps commanders were to write their own plans for pursuing the overall goal. In the three corps, for example, a program commencing in June was expected to push outward in concentric circles until the adjacent provinces of Xi Dinh, Binh Ha, Binh Duong, Hao Nijia, Long An, and Phuc Thai were firmly under government control. General Harkins concluded that the offensive would work if there are no more coups and Khan stays alive, and the Joint Chiefs accepted the oil spot idea as part of an integrated political, socio-economic, and psychological offensive to support more fully the military effort. The chiefs endorsed giving jet aircraft to the Vietnamese Air Force and to the Farm Gate 1st Air Commando Squadron. They likewise urged studies of how to escalate operations against North Vietnam. To PACAF, the papers and studies flowing out of Washington and Hawaii mirrored the uneasiness with which U.S. authorities view the possibility of engaging U.S. ground forces with communist forces anywhere. There was another way, however. Strictly USAF operations 
with initial non-nuclear strikes would hand the Air Force strong arguments for building its tactical forces. At the same time, the United States would be able to react quickly to threats, to control operations carefully, and to pull out at once if need be. General LeMay, as usual, had little confidence in the very limited actions and studies recommended by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We are swatting flies, he said, when we ought to be going after the manure pile. He wanted more positive and bolder actions to include bombing targets in North Vietnam now. The Air Force chief favored expanded interdiction, crop destruction, attacks on guerrillas in Laos, destroying dams and dikes in North Vietnam to flood croplands, disrupting power sources, bombing North Vietnamese military centers, and mining ports. He advocated sending more aircraft, including jets, to enlarge air-dropped and air-landed operations, greater bombing of targets beyond the reach of ground forces, and heavier escort and cover. He wished to relax the barriers to cross-border actions. To keep the United States from getting bogged down in a ground war on the Asian mainland, the only hope was massive air operations. Prodded by General LeMay and pursuing the President's expressed views, the Joint Chiefs in early March proposed overt military actions against North Vietnam. The initial phase would witness low-level reconnaissance over Laos and North Vietnam. Airstrikes, amphibious raids, sabotage, and harassment of shipping were to follow. Then would come destruction of highway bridges, airfields, POL dumps, and other supply targets. The climax would be full-scale air and naval operations against North Vietnam. Walt W. Rostow, chairman of the Policy Planning Council at the Department of State, thought North Vietnam vulnerable to bombing. After all, Ho Chi Minh was no longer a guerrilla with nothing to lose. He had an industrial complex to protect. W. Averill Harriman and Roger Hillsman of the State Department opposed escalated measures against North Vietnam since the Laotian infiltration routes seemed to be used but little. On March 6, Kang fired three corps commanders and five of the nine division commanders. Soon, a wholesale removal of 23 province chiefs ensued. The disruption of leadership shook the confidence of the armed forces and of the people. Military desertions soared. Meanwhile, the prestige of the Viet Cong rose. Weakness at Saigon and decentralized military command let the corps commanders store up power. Rancor between ground commanders and province and district chiefs bred confusion and disagreement. Air Force officers sensed that uncoordinated airstrikes might permit some party to make the Americans a scapegoat for a tragic incident. Before making up his mind on the options at hand, President Johnson sent Secretary McNamara and General Taylor to Vietnam. During March 8 through 10, they accompanied General Kang on his speech-making visits to Canto, Bac Liu, the Ho Hao area, Hue, and Saigon. On the platform, McNamara and Taylor stood on either side of Kang and lifted his hands in the air as a visible sign of U.S. support. In private talks, McNamara and Taylor gained the impression that the military situation had gone downhill. Nearly 40% of the countryside was under Viet Cong influence and control, including the critical provinces around Saigon. In eight of the 43 provinces, the insurgents held 75 to 90 percent of the land. Kang was sure that his government troops could clear the country, but doubted if they could keep it. He preferred covert actions against North Vietnam until rear area security was set up. No one was optimistic about limited covert operations. 
although clandestine activities could be expanded by easing curbs on bombardment. Men, money, and material were no object, McNamara said. The United States had to press on. After discussing the aerial mining of North Vietnamese waters, the defense secretary directed that mine-laying training for Vietnamese pilots begin at once. Ambassador Lodge objected to massive destruction before trying a carrot-and-stick approach. The United States could offer North Vietnam advantages for seizing aggression, while at the same time confronting Hanoi with covert actions such as unacknowledged airstrikes. Photos by RF-101 reconnaissance planes revealed active Viet Cong bases right across the border in Cambodia. But hot pursuit across the frontier was ruled out in light of American negotiations to keep Cambodia from giving up neutrality and winding up in the Hanoi and Peking camp. The political damage would far outweigh any military worth. Secretary McNamara asked if it was better to shore up the Vietnamese Air Force or to send more USAF aircraft. He learned that Americans had to fill in the gaps caused by lack of motivation on the part of the Vietnamese Air Force, its inability to produce fast reaction strikes, and its reluctance to fly at night and on weekends. After a round of talks in Hawaii, McNamara and Taylor flew back to Washington. The defense secretary proposed 12 steps to President Johnson for changing the course of the war. Though stressing actions within the country, the secretary suggested that plans be laid for border control actions inside Laos and Cambodia on 72 hours' notice. These would be tit-for-tat bomb strikes and commando raids by Vietnamese forces on such North Vietnamese targets as communication centers, training camps, and infiltration routes. For the present, McNamara resisted border control or graduated military pressure operations. He nevertheless thought there ought to be standby plans for gradually tightening the screws on North Vietnam. The plans would be triggered on 30 days' notice and involve air attacks on military and possibly industrial targets. The Joint Chiefs judged the Defense Secretary's program to be too sparse unless quick, decisive action against North Vietnam was added. John A. McCone, CIA director, labeled McNamara's proposals too little, too late. He urged swift operations in the South to match intensive air and naval moves on the North. General LeMay spoke to the point. He did not think that the military tools and concepts were generally sound and adequate. He deplored the shackling of sound military activities with artificial political bonds that events had long made obsolete. The National Security Council concurred in the Secretary of Defense's recommendations but warned the United States should commit itself to the clear objective of preventing the fall of South Vietnam to communism. Otherwise, the result would destroy CETO. President Johnson harbored doubts but approved the proposals, preferring the Secretary's approach to that of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The political and military base in South Vietnam seemed too fragile to invite expanded enemy hostilities. Furthermore, Striking North Vietnam might bring the Chinese and Soviets into the war. The president asked all agencies to support energetically the actions called for. Shortly afterwards, the Joint Chiefs answered a question put by Johnson on March 4. Had all possible support been given American and Vietnamese units since he had become president? The chiefs said they had hoped for stronger U.S. action to encompass air reconnaissance in Laos and Cambodia, clandestine intelligence operations in Cambodia, hot pursuit by ground troops, inspection of Cambodian shipping in the Mekong Delta, and jet fighters for South Vietnam. 
but all had been turned down due to national policy. In a major address on March 26, 1964, Secretary of Defense McNamara explained the four options open to the president. The United States could withdraw from Vietnam, but this was completely untenable. Vietnam could be neutralized, risking an eventual communist takeover. Military actions could be spread into North Vietnam, a choice being carefully studied. Or the United States could focus on helping the Vietnamese win the option already approved by Johnson. Even if fighting beyond South Vietnam was needed, it would supplement rather than substitute for general progress and stability in the country. The decision to center on the battle inside Vietnam underscored the demand to relax the rules of engagement for air operations. On March 27, MACV authorized strike aircraft to operate to the border if it was a river or road. Elsewhere, they could fly as close as 2,000 meters when directed by a forward air controller, 5,000 meters when not. Aircraft were forbidden to fire across or violate the frontier without diplomatic clearance. The State Department sympathized with the JCS stand for hot pursuit into Cambodia under certain conditions, but contested any easing of the curbs. This position governed in 1964 and was reiterated firmly by MACV in October and November after aircraft flew over the border by accident. Following a CETO Council meeting in Manila on April 15, Secretary Rusk and General Wheeler went to Saigon. With Ambassador Lodge, they weighed the chances of squeezing North Vietnam by Vietnamese covert operations, by covert U.S. support for Vietnamese aerial mining and strikes, and lastly, by covert American-Vietnamese naval displays, bombardments, and air attacks. Rusk felt that the limited resources given Vietnam inhibited U.S. officials from daring new efforts. He wondered whether enough Americans were aiding civil administrative services in cleared areas that had to be held. On April 28, the president therefore suggested to Lodge that two or three hundred troops be replaced by civilian advisors to shift the emphasis toward the art of peace. Hanoi, meanwhile, became more belligerent. On April 13, Ho Chi Minh declared that if the United States carried the war to North Vietnam, he had powerful friends ready to help him. In the Laotian panhandle, North Vietnamese construction crews signalmen and truck drivers improved infiltration routes. Also in April, a North Vietnamese regiment was recalled from Laos and given special military and political training for operations in Vietnam. Hanoi began to form new regiments for dispatch southward. Having probed Laotian government forces since November 1963, Pathet Lao and North Vietnamese troops on April 27 launched heavy attacks on the Plain of Jars. After boasting that they could take any district headquarters in the Mekong Delta, the Viet Cong on the night of April 12th overran the district capital of Kien Long on the Khao Mao Peninsula. In the ensuing air-ground battle, the enemy lost at least 55 men killed, including the commander. Yet 283 Vietnamese and 9 Americans were casualties, the capital was in ruins, and some 200 civilians were killed or wounded. On May 2nd, a Viet Cong underwater demolition team sank the U.S. aircraft ferry Card while it was berthed in the Saigon River and delivering helicopters. Stung by these successes, General Kang told Lodge on May 4 that he wanted to declare war on North Vietnam. He wished to have 10,000 Special Forces troops to cover the whole Cambodian-Laotian border, with the United States start bombing beyond the confines of South Vietnam. On this question, there was a serious split between American policymakers and even within the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
General LeMay and General Wallace M. Green, Jr., USMC, had urged low-level reconnaissance and airstrikes against the North by U.S. aircraft. In a shift of opinion, the other JCS members, Chairman Taylor, General Harold K. Johnson, USA, and Admiral David L. MacDonald, USN, believed that heavy pressure was not warranted, at least for the present. In its study of how to tighten the screws on North Vietnam, Sullivan's Vietnam Coordinating Committee noted that North Vietnam's economy was chiefly agrarian. There were relatively few industrial targets that, if wiped out, would have an immediate military impact. Still, a steady step up in air power, from psychological applications to selective strikes, could hurt Hanoi and slow its support to the Viet Cong. Pak, meantime, firmed up plans for the United States to take part in military operations in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam if the authorities in Washington so ordered. Communist activities in the Laotian panhandle prompted the Joint Chiefs to plan with the government of Vietnam for airlifting Vietnamese intelligence teams into the area around Chaponi. When Secretary McNamara and General Taylor visited Saigon during May 12 and 13, McNamara let Kang know that bombing North Vietnam would be no substitute for clearing the Viet Cong out of South Vietnam. The two found Harkins optimistic, Westmoreland less so, and Lodge satisfied with the size and composition of U.S. efforts. Further large-scale contributions, he said, are not warranted. The collapse of government defenses on the Plain of Jars on May 17 demanded rapid reaction within Laos and a second look at the merits of exerting pressure on North Vietnam. A National Security Council working group, chaired by Assistant Secretary of State William P. Bundy, prepared a 30-day scenario of political actions leading to airstrikes against North Vietnamese targets and a call for an international conference on Vietnam. The Joint Chiefs J-3, Operations, listed targets in these categories of ascending importance to convince Hanoi that it was too risky to back the Viet Cong in Pathet Lao, to deter Hanoi from escalating the conflict, and to destroy the North Vietnamese industrial base. In meetings on May 24 and 25, the Executive Committee of the National Security Council put forward selected portions of the scenario. President Johnson then enjoined his senior advisors to hold a major strategy conference in Hawaii on June 1 and 2. The Soviet Union early in 1964 had advocated new meetings of the Geneva powers on Vietnam and Cambodia, and on May 27, a Polish diplomatic initiative called for a conference on Laos. After hearing charges of border violations, the United Nations Security Council suggested that observers be placed along the Cambodian frontier to ease tensions. The United States and South Vietnam welcomed the proposal, but the Viet Cong and Cambodia spurned it. As acting chairman, LeMay advised the Joint Chiefs on May 28 that the United States was losing Southeast Asia fast. The chiefs, he argued, ought to present at the upcoming Honolulu Military Conference a clear record on how to start winning. He said the only way to end Hanoi's support of the insurgency in Vietnam and Laos would be to destroy its means to do so. Air attack should be made on infiltration points at Dien Bien Phu and Vinh to show the sharp change in American outlook and resolve. On the 30th, the Joint Chiefs accepted LeMay's views and passed them to McNamara. Upon his return, Chairman Taylor disagreed with these views and sent his own to the Defense Secretary, initially proposing more limited actions against targets less risky than Vinh and Dien Bien Phu. The purpose, he stated, 
would be to impress upon Hanoi U.S. readiness to take more drastic action should Vietnam enlarge its support for the Viet Cong. Present at the Secretary of Defense Conference on June 1 and 2 were Secretary Rusk, Ambassador Lodge, General Taylor, Admiral Felt, and Mr. Sullivan of the President's Vietnam Coordinating Committee. General Harkins, whose relations with Lodge had soured, did not attend. The atmosphere was gloomy. The talk focused on getting congressional approval for wider action in Southeast Asia. Envisioned were commitment of American divisions, a partial U.S. mobilization, and air attacks on North Vietnam. Lodge favored a careful bombing campaign. He believed it would bolster the shaky Kang government and impart a feeling of unity to the war-weary South Vietnamese. At the end, the consensus was to wait and see what developed. Mr. James B. Seaborn, the Canadian member of the International Control Commission, visited North Vietnam and apprised the government of American thoughts on a negotiated peace based on concessions by both sides. If Hanoi would stop sending men and arms south, Washington would respond with economic aid. Denying any attempt to threaten, the United States was well aware of Hanoi's strings on the Viet Cong. If the war heated up, the greatest devastation would be loosed upon North Vietnam. Seaborn stressed President Johnson's desire for a settlement based on Hanoi's promise to abide by the Geneva Agreements of 1954 and 1962. North Vietnamese officials were unimpressed. They wanted the United States to withdraw totally from Vietnam. This would be followed by a neutral regime in Saigon, with the National Liberation Front charting the future of the country. Seaborn, during a second trip in August, conveyed the warning that American patience was wearing thin. Hanoi's reply was hardly encouraging for peace. Secretary McNamara and General Taylor had asked the JCS and SINCPAC to forge a three-phase airstrike plan against North Vietnam. If set in motion, it would signal American readiness to attack all major military targets in the country. On July 11, the planner settled on 94 airstrike objectives in North Vietnam, 82 targets, and 12 armed reconnaissance routes. They next set about drafting detailed plans for this massive air action. SINCPAC, rather than MACV, was to have overall direction of operations against North Vietnam through PACAF and PAC fleet commanders. But the principal thrust of American policy continued to be countering the insurgency within the borders of South Vietnam. To that end, the MACV commander was to devote his full attention. End of Chapter 17 Recording by Paul Hampton